Our positional breakdown series continues as the overhaul of the Seahawks roster carries on this offseason. Today, the razor-sharp Matty Brown joins us to look at the wide receivers and defensive backs. Let's light them up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with my intrepid producer, Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts Podcast. Mike, how are we doing today? Doing all right, Jackson. Ready to continue the positional breakdown series with another fantastic guest. Our British invasion continues. I know, man. We're on quite the Euro trip here. I'm I'm stoked to have this guy with us, and, and we'll get to that in a second, but... Man, this offseason keeps chugging along. Teams are beginning their voluntary OTAs. And for Seattle, they really do have a much different feel because for years, the team has leaned on Russell Wilson, Bobby Wagner, and others for their on-field leadership. That's really what this time of the offseason is about. But now, that massive vacuum needs to be filled. And it's going to be fascinating to see how that materializes. Yeah, there's such a leadership vacancy on the team. I mean, you would think that Quandre Diggs steps into that, Jamal Adams, you know, uh, Drew Locke, hopefully, you know, those are just your banner leaders of the franchise moving forward. Yeah, you know, I I saw Tyler Lockett doing a hype circle, (laughs) kind of a ridiculous one. He was calling out Super Bowl and having the team call back champs, which, hey, I love it. I love the optimism. And uh, it looks like Gino is leading a lot of the drills, uh, for the offense, which is great. Uh, I look forward to DK Metcalf's presence as well. I appreciate that you just glossed over me naming Drew Locke as one of the team's leaders. So thank you for <laughs> thank you for the lack of oversight. I appreciate that I have done nothing to earn that. Yeah. Well, you know, like always, Mike, just try and do better. I won't. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but listen, like we talked about last week, there is a ton of fluidity throughout this roster. And as our guest, Rob Staten, pointed out, there is true competition now, not just for the back end of the roster, but for meaningful starting positions. It's a theme that runs through every positional group on the Seahawks. And today, we're going to look at two of the most exciting ones. Joining us to talk about the wide receivers and defensive backs is the co-host of the Seattle Overload podcast. And just like Rob did last week, he comes to us from the United Kingdom. Matty Brown possesses a remarkable understanding of scheme and technique, and he's kind enough to stay up late for us. Matty, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me, and it's very kind of you to do this. Actually, not too late. It's only 1 a.m. here. Usually, guys are like, <laughs> come on at 5 a.m. Well, sort of, you know, lunchtime for me, that is. Um, but I'll be giving you a, a southern English accent, whereas Rob is from Yorkshire, which is the north of England. So you can all, get, if you're into your accents, and I know some Americans tend to be, uh, you can all hopefully not find my voice too painful. How'd you how'd you end up knowing so much about American football? There you go. So uh, put it on in 2012. Uh, I, my family got Sky Sports, which is the after nagging for ages to watch, you know, soccer and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, uh, what is this rubbish game? Uh, there's this sort of thing in England calling it egg ball. Hilarious. And it's like rugby, but for softies because there's pads. And it's like, haha, that's so funny. Uh, <laughs> but then I, I watched it and was like, wow, this is really complicated. Uh, I don't I don't really understand this. And I would like to learn a bit more. The Seahawks have cool colors. There's this guy called Marshawn Lynch. There's this really fast, like exciting quarterback who can do all sorts of things called Russell Wilson. I 
love the team speed on defense. I want to know more. So you get Madden, you learn the rules from Madden. Uh, but <laughs> this is awesome. Particularly the tactical side of that interested me. Like with soccer, I was always into like the tactics. And then because I'm a massive nerd, uh, going to football, I was like, oh. So then going to university, and it does get played in British universities, not to the. I, I think uh, Rutgers, and we'll be talking about Bone Melton, but I think Rutgers would put like 200 points on a British university. Uh, <laughs> that being said, <laughs> you go to university. Yeah, I, I played the game very briefly at cornerback, very slowly from about 20 yards off, and then started coaching the game from there. Still coach the game now in Britain for uh, the London Olympians, which is uh, Britain's most successful uh, adult team. And also uh, for the UEA Pirates, which is where I went to university, and they're, they're in the Premier Division. So very much involved and love football. Uh, it took preference over soccer. It's now my job. I'm very lucky in that sense. So it's become football. It's officially football. Oh, yeah. Well, also, you have to cater to your audience, Mike. I'm trying to be a professional uh, podcast person here. I wouldn't know much about that. So no, you, you can't be calling. Uh, Jackson was very kind to to code switch and call it American football for me, though. That was, that was very courteous. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, listen, if, if you aren't familiar with Maddie's uh, Twitter feed, Maddie F Brown is somebody you need to be following because, I mean, it it blows me away that what he's putting out there has just been figured out grassroots organically over the last 10 years. It, it really is remarkable. And I, I really can't wait to dive into the receivers and the defensive backs with you. But before we do kind of want to pick your brain about the direction of the Seahawks offense writ large last year, Seattle brought in Shane Waldron, who on paper at least represented a pretty dramatic philosophical change from the Daryl Bevel and Brian Schottenheimer offenses. But to my idiot brain, it seems like there was a spirited effort to quicken pace, use more pre-snap motion, work the middle of the field in the first few games, but that slowly morphed back into the same offense that we've seen for the last few years. I've certainly got some theories about it, but I'm curious what your take on season one of the Shane Waldron era was. Yeah, well, I think the, the caveat with all of this is who is your quarterback going to be, right? And right. like with any position, but particularly quarterbacks is the most important position in football by far. You have to cater things, your scheme, your play calling to your quarterback. And so I think maybe we had a bit of early Waldron enthusiasm and Waldron saying things, but it slowly morphed into similar stuff because the quarterback is Russell Wilson. And we have such a, a wide body of work of Wilson in Seattle where there were similarities to every uh, offense called by Schottenheimer, Bevel or Waldron, where you, the quarterback won't, for whatever reason, access certain parts of the field. Despite being a, a superb elite quarterback, he won't access that intermediate and the concepts required. And some of those concepts are ones which Waldron in the past had had uh, had had thrived with 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 Jared Goff, for instance. So you have to change in that sense. You have to throw out some stuff. The other thing is under center, so lining up under center versus lining up in the shotgun. Well, if you think about those McVeigh offenses with Jared Goff and and Todd Gurley. They were predominantly under-centered teams in base downs, and then it's only clear passing downs where they got into the shotgun. Now, we've seen how uh, McVeigh himself, with uh, Matt Stafford coming in, he started using more shotgun stuff because Stafford can do that. He doesn't need the training wheels approach that Jared Goff needed. But with Russell Wilson, him in under-center, he won't access the the intermediate, and so he's he's largely a 
and on like five-step drop concepts, right? So he's largely uh, more suited to the shotgun where he, he can access more of the field. He, he has that um, greater depth of vision and he also has more room for improvisation. He's not um, limited to under center, really. There's it, much more of a timing element to it, synced up with the, the, the drop distance. I'm I'm, I'm kind of happy to hear you say that because it does validate how I felt about it is that there's just only so much variation you can run with a quarterback like Russell Wilson. And we've talked about this before. Russell Wilson is not just good at anything. He's either elite at something or really struggles. And, you know, we, we've talked about how he's probably the most accurate deep ball passer that I've ever seen. Um, even though this has slipped a little bit, he's still extremely elusive. He's an amazing improviser. All of these things are great. Those are also difficult things to build an offense around. And the things he struggles with are short passes, truly. I mean, he passes well in short and intermediate distances to the boundaries. But to your point about not accessing certain parts of the field, I mean, you look at his heat maps. They are ice blue, short middle. And that, to my understanding, is a huge part of what a McVay-style offense wants to do. And that is really put the linebackers in a difficult position where they're having to defend that middle part of the field. They're, you know, coming off of a run key with play action, all that stuff. It, it, it seems like the whole point is to confuse those linebackers and make them make a decision and then take advantage of that. But, and then, you know, having the ability to throw short passes to the running backs, it's another thing Russell Wilson has always struggled with. So moving forward, whether it be what we've seen from Geno Locke. I don't know how much Drew Locke you've watched. I'm I'm just starting to kind of look back at more of the stuff that he's done. Poor you. Do, do you <laughs> see either of those two quarterbacks being able to do a little bit more? Yeah, so that's the exciting part of this, right? Because like with Russell going to Denver, we're going to find out with Waldron in Seattle what it kind of, what, what you know, what his ideal looks like. Because... Yeah, we saw Geno Smith last year, but that was a real shortened version. That was still the Wilson offense, but kind of trying to tune the elements to Geno. But you can't realistically install stuff. And DK Metcalf, he said as much in one of his many off-season interviews. And so moving forward, I I do think it will look different. Um, I think Geno can access more of these throws. I mean, even when he's coming in in the rush stuff, he's hitting these kind of uh, tertiary digs these backside digs and accessing more of these m- middle field windows. It was also going to be really interesting because that's the sort of stuff which beats cover two and, and middle field open defenses and these these uh, kind of more aggressive matchup zone middle field open defenses where Russell, he's either going to throw the, 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 the honey hole uh, deep shot or he's going to check it down. He can't access the intermediate to beat that stuff. And so then what happens is the coverage morphs into a thing where it's even harder to, to, to beat it because they're not having to defend the, the the weak point of that coverage where you can really stretch it. Uh, so moving forward, Locke or Gino, I do think it does look slightly different. I mean, heck, even in the preseason, you saw uh, quarterbacks who I can't remember the name of now, which is very disrespectful of me, but they were hitting these kind of over-the-middle concepts where you're like, oh, well, that's the staple of the, the Seahawks offense now. For instance, um, Waldron has this play called Drift where it's a quick play action and you bang it into the, the dig route at about 15 yards of depth. It, like you were speaking to, linebackers are put in conflict. It's popped over the head. Kind of thing that uh, McVay did to the Seahawks uh, a fair bit 
and, and similar kind of concepts where you're like, what on earth are they doing on defense? How is it this easy? Oh my God, those first, call it four or five matchups of the McVeigh era against Seattle, he had those linebackers in hell, man. Yeah, it's so unfortunate that um, he always seems to manage to stay, like, could they just try adaptations and stuff, but he always manages to stay a step ahead of Carroll, it seems, uh, most of the time. Anyway, but it's this, those sort of concepts should be back in. Now, uh, you mentioned about how the Colts game, they looked, it was like, wow, this is this is cool. I think the difference there was they could run the ball in a way that uh, they, were, they, they ran the ball effectively, right? And mm-hmm. they had D. Eskridge, and once D. Eskridge goes down, and his his uh, threat on fly sweeps, he then falls out the offense. Um, it, it got tougher because they don't have that fly sweep threat necessarily. You don't want Lockett doing that too much. I think, rightly or wrongly, the coaching staff's confidence in those kind of uh, motions constraints disappeared, and that should have been a big part of it. The other thing is tight splits in this kind of offensive deal, a, a, a massive, massive thing, like having these condensed formations. And again, in a Russell Wilson sense, there's only so much he can do from the, the condensed splits until it's actually more preferable to have more normal splits for Russell to uh, access in the passing game. However, with the quarterback who's actually going to um, hit some of these windows that Russell didn't or couldn't, um, you can you can condense your splits a lot more. And, and I do expect that to be the case with Geno and Drew Locke. So in a very short sense, uh, a, a, a summary we should see with Locke and Gino, it become more like what we expected from Aldrin. Uh, wh- whether we do or not, I'm fascinated uh, to find out. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Eskridge and the Seahawks used a really high pick on this guy. And the type of pick that you use on someone that you anticipate to be a sort of foundational piece of the offense. And, you know, it's, it's something where you're right. I, I hadn't given it much thought cause it's like, Oh, he gets hurt early and then he comes back and he kind of gets hurt again. And he leaves the season with a handful of touches and you're just like, Oh, I wasn't that impactful. But what I hadn't been considering is what you're talking about. The fact that he had a unique skill set on the team. I mean, Freddie Swain, isn't going to run those jet sweeps for you. And it is such a huge part of what I think Shane Weldon wants to do. D. Eskridge is one of the more fascinating players to me as we move forward into the season because he felt like a Waldron pick, didn't he? Yeah, he really did. Uh, and he felt Seahawky in the sense that he was a scrappy as hell run blocker, right? He, he was willing to stick his nose in there. That that stuff addressed. He was also a, a real Waldron kind of guy like that carry the, the football on, on fly sweeps, be elusive in that sense, but also he could... In, if you think about like Robert Woods in the Rams offense, he could uh, run those like deep crossing routes, the intermediate uh, le- level of play action where he's he's like getting open and just outrunning guys with the leverage advantage anyway from a condensed split. Uh, coming out, uh, and, and his understanding of space as well was very obvious uh, at Western Michigan. And um, I th- is Caleb Ellaby still on the Seahawks? Uh, but anyway... Quarterback talent-wise, they weren't dealing with uh, too much there. Had an interesting offense, but you could see uh, it, it kind of show up. The one question I had with him was his kind of strength on, and ability to separate on like the deep downfield stuff. Something Tyler Lockett is a smaller guy shown you can do if you're crafty enough, but that was the thing which really needed refining along with the usual stuff for guys coming out where it's like, okay, 
you can probably uh, tighten this release up a bit. You're, you're trying some moves that they're nice, but you know, what's your main one? What, what's your go-to? What's your change up? And then what's your, your third thing? Let's get really good at them. Let's polish them up and refine those. But yeah, so that was a big shame. And, and like you say, Freddie Swain, uh, he's kind of just a, he's more of like a four or five type and, and, and a fine one at that. But when he's your three, that's a bit of a problem. And it's not like they didn't try. When did they bring Philip Dorsett in? Did, was that was that last season? Because as well, yeah. they like came back to him because I think that was them trying to get these fly sweeps to a point. He brings that element, but he just never got on the field. And then as much as I like him, um, Penny Hart, that's the one. He he is a good fly sweep threat in the sense that he he could carry the football like and he had, he didn't fumble it all the time or anything like that. He has four like four six four seven speed like and maybe something went wrong with the testing, but um, he's not like a true kind of dynamic burner necessarily. Even though sometimes he looks like it. So you know it was Penny Hart and Freddie Swain behind the obvious two of Metcalf and Lockett, yep. which is. It's not like they weren't trying to upgrade it. And now this time around, they've sort of got ahead of that potential problem if Eskridge ain't ready to go. And they've got Marquise Goodwin, who should be able to add that constraint in, right? And be a be an absolute burner to the sideline on, on fly sweeps, but also on those the deep over kind of crossing routes off play action and, and whatnot. Yeah, I think Goodwin is a really fun uh, addition, you know, he's not a transformative player, but I do think he unlocks a couple of doors mm. for play calling. And I mean, anytime you can bring almost Olympic speed in an NFL body onto a team, it's, <laughs> I mean, you almost just got to try it. Right. Yeah, no doubt. And ideally, like uh, with all that said, ideally he's the kind of player you cut because Eskridge is yeah. looking good. And... Well, he's risk-free. He's, he's, he's risk-free, which, which I appreciate. Uh, you know, historically, ever since DK Metcalf got drafted, he and Lockett have owned a huge portion of the target share. I mean, the Seahawks offense has been really heavily funneled through those two for three years now. Is that something that you expect to continue moving forward? Or was that really just a reflection of Eskridge being hurt and there not being a whole lot else to throw to? That was the thing with the Eskridge pick when, when he got selected there. It was like, he's going to find it hard to get as many targets because of Lockett and Metcalf. So, I, I, you know, it's, it's natural that they will be target hogs or whatever you want to call them. Uh, Metcalf, I think Russell was actually one of the, the best quarterbacks for his skill set uh, in the sense that Russell's going to spam all those sideline shots. And and that's kind of what Metcalf is. He's like his, his route running, I think, is better than probably the national perception. Uh, but he still has... Uh, you know, that kind of sidelines, like he'll run a go, he can run a comeback, he can run like a, a blaze out where it's like, but basically it's all it's all at the sideline. It's all with the threat of vertical speed and then working back to the football deep or going up down the field, just running past someone. Now, Russell really spams that stuff. Whoever the next quarterback is, maybe it reduces slightly. Then again, it was quite obvious that he wasn't fully 100%, I thought, last year. And it did come out that, you know, he he was hurt. He had surgery on his foot, right? It, it will be interesting to see how, he, how his usage changes because he might actually be unlocked a bit more over the middle. And, and my comments on his route running might actually, you know, 
proved to be a bit harsh and you might see a bit more of him unlocked as a receiver in that sense. I mean, and and to a different point, Geno Smith, like when he was targeting uh, Metcalf, we saw Metcalf go up and get the football uh, vertically in a way that we we didn't really see of Russell. Like you you spoke about Russell uh, struggling with short passes and that kind of links to the touch thing. And on the back shoulder fades, he just couldn't unlock Metcalf in that sense. And that's, that's something where... That's almost a back shoulder fade if it's in like the red zone, like the like fifteen yard and in. That's more of like an intermediate kind of target, right? It's not like a deep downfield ball. That's somewhere where I think if Metcalf can sync up the chemistry in a in a way of the new quarterback that he wasn't quite able to with Russell, that's an exciting element. You know, to your point, it's really hard to overstate the effect that it has when a defense just isn't afraid of a quarterback hitting a certain part of the field. And I wonder how much of the limitations of or perceived limitations of DK's route running have to do with the fact that they just know he's not going to run over the middle of the field shorter than 15 yards. Like it's just not going to happen. And DK is the kind of guy that is so big, fast, strong, sexy that you almost have to cheat you know, and, and can't play him straight up. I mean, we even saw it with Jalen Ramsey, who I think is probably the most talented cover player in the NFL. He was having to cheat one side or the other on, on Metcalf with this new quarterback. They're not going to have the talent or ability that Russell Wilson has. And, and just the ceiling that Russ had, is DK to a point in his career where you can just force feed him and use him as kind of a safety valve and just say, Hey, here's this big guy with a large wingspan. I'm just going to throw it to him at five yards and we're just going to take the five yard catch. Or is, is he not quite there yet? Well, I think Russell showed he was there in the sense that the way he was using some of those slant routes last year, where he's getting like absolutely lit the heck up by like a safety crashing down from the, from the inside. I think I think Metcalf is there, but the, but then his his whole deal is his uh, his catching is has moments of inconsistency. Big time. Where it's like, and he's he's like almost so talented that he's and so physically gifted that he's still learning his his full capabilities. And it's sometimes there's like a glitch in the system where he's he can he just manages to drop what look like a, a clear catch. So that that um, can be improved on. And when we talk about like you know. His contract and pay good players, keep good players. The the Wilson thing was a complicated matter, but on the main, like keep <laughs> keep your good players, right? Um, pay him, right. but 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 but, yeah. but Metcalf, um, the contract he gets, he should get it. But also the money is like, well, he's not like, for instance, he's not Devonte Adams, right? Now he's a completely different sure. skill set as well. But if we're talking like, uh, I don't know, where where would you put Metcalf? Is is he a top ten receiver? I I think his ceiling is certainly top ten. Yes, um, yeah, you're sort of paying him for that ceiling. Yeah, if you're going to give me a league average quarterback, let's say you're you're going to run. Oh, I like Ryan Tannehill, but he fits for this conversation. Your quarterback's Ryan Tannehill, and you're drafting receivers to be put around him for one season. He's probably around ten, or maybe a little bit lower. But I think if you were to project the fully actualized versions. Onto every wide receiver, I think he's top three. Mm. And I've heard it described that he's almost like a Mike Evans type, and that that could be what he becomes. You know, that's what he ends up being. And 
I, I could see that as well. Like a really good two who's a complete mismatch, you know? Yeah. Like a real problem. And that's still worth paying. Like, yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, he's there's just not a lot of guys who have the ability to change an NFL game dramatically. We were talking about one of the highest concentrations of physical ability on the planet anytime an NFL game is being played. And so to be able to tilt the field or move the needle in that regard requires someone really, really special. You know, you're talking about your Devontae Adamses and your Jamar Chases and Tyreek Hills, Justin Jeffersons, that quality of player that can actually do that from the wide receiver position. I think he can do it. I don't know if he ever becomes a 150 target guy because to do that, you have to be able to win in a lot of ways. But he's only 24. And so to the point about, you know, paying him, is he Devontae Adams or Tyreek Hill yet? No. But when you give big contracts, extensions you're buying the future not the past and it, i would say he's better at 24 than either of those guys were so uh yeah i i'm with you i think i think you plant your flag in this guy and and you build around him and he seems ready to take on a leadership role but i think a big reason that he's been able to do that is because he didn't have to come in and be the guy right away he has tyler lockett who is just a pro's pro he lacks all of the stuff we were talking about, <laughs> what makes DK Metcalf so great and has all of the stuff that DK Metcalf struggles with. And I think that's just a really beautiful kind of symbiotic mentor for Metcalf to have as he learns the NFL game. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And Lockett's such like a, well, comes across as, and I'm sure it's not fake. Um, he comes across as a very chill guy and very mature guy. And it sort of knows his role on the team, perfect kind of mentor. Uh he turns 30 in September and I mean we saw how obviously don't wish for this but we saw how quickly it ended for Doug Baldwin you know and and suddenly that sort of almost came out of the blue that he was retiring and so 30 in the NFL is is quite old uh, and Lockett's been through some severe injuries hopefully he stays healthy but what I'm interested in is how you mentioned how Metcalf could be the safety blanket maybe Lockett transitions in a way that Doug Baldwin did where he, he mm-hmm. sort of relies on crafty route running, especially with quarterbacks who, who may need that more than sort of downfield vertical stuff. And, and he becomes that kind of safety blanket from the slot. Uh, it will be interesting to see because at the end of the day, his connection with Russell Wilson on the, the deep balls was unbelievable. And his ability to separate and be like a legit like vertical threat, despite not being the tallest, but he could go up and get it. His like crafty late separation, his ability to catch it in the bucket. All of that stuff, his concentration, his ball tracking, superb. But depending on depending on what we get from the quarterback position, he might actually to get his catches, to get his targets, to be a valuable piece in the offense, he might his role might change slightly and his usage as well. So again, to bring on twenty twenty two in the sense that I, I want to see what that looks like. Totally, and I think with Lockett, what makes him excel is. He is excellent at the thing that I value the most in a wide receiver. I mean, we spend so much time talking about height and weight and hands and speed and all of these things, but none of it matters if you can't get open and especially if you can't get open early. And Tyler Lockett is really, really good at getting open early. He he reminds me stylistically, obviously not the same talent level, but stylistically he reminds me a lot of Antonio Brown who could win at every single level, 
He could win in all nine routes, and he made every single route look exactly the same coming off the line of scrimmage. And that's really difficult for someone covering him to figure out. Now, he gives you a very diminutive target to try and hit, uh, and and so he loses a little bit of that. But he crafty was the perfect word for it, and, and I'm glad you said that because – I think, yes, it's great for a new, unproven quarterback, let's say it's Drew Locke, to have a huge dude to throw to like DK Metcalf. But I think it's almost better to just have a guy who's open at the top of a three-step drop than it is about that big hulking mass that you just throw it at. Yeah, and talking of uh, huge hulking uh, targets, right, and and their draft picks, they've, they, they've added one. But the tight end group, uh, and I, mean, I know we're focusing on wide receivers, and I'm sure you'll have a, a great guest on to talk tight ends through. But the tight end group in its versatility, in that no fan, in theory, right on paper, is a guy who can do both he, he, at a high level and is a crazy gifted athlete. I love Noah fan. I right? am so excited about him. Yeah. 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 And 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 feel free to to touch, we we are going to touch on tight ends uh more in depth later on this summer, but by all means, man, go in because we are really talking about the pass catchers right now. And I think that is one thing that sets Noah Fant or at least Noah Fant's potential uh apart from the majority of NFL tight ends is his ability to impact the passing game. Yeah. And um, coupled with the fact Will Disley he ain't going to give you much in the, the passing game. Uh, reliable set of hands, but not much speed, right? But his run blocking is superb. Now, both of them being able to be on the field at the same time and Fant being able to give you a high-level performance means Seattle can get into 12 personnel quite reliably and, and 12 personnel groupings. We're still waiting to see what Which we get. Which is from- something that the Rams did a lot with Tyler Higby and Gerald Everett. Yeah, exa- exactly. Great point. So... The, the Rams sort of got figured out, right, or whatever, with their 11 personnel staff, moved, tried to transition more to 12 personnel. Now, 12 personnel is kind of overblown. Like Seattle last year, they were in at 26% per uh, Warren Sharp. But what it would allow you to do if Seattle... The, the, the problem with it is, like, if you go and look at 12 personnel, uh, like, for instance, the best team to do it is that Patriots team where they had Rob Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez. And you go on YouTube and... Um, uh, bets on YouTube. He 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 posted a video, a cut up of them in 2011, and oh my word, they're they're both a mismatch in the passing game, like a complete mismatch. Plus, can run block. Now, Disley, as we've just said, ain't the mismatch in the run game. So really, 12 personnel isn't as valid as it may seem. But what 12 personnel, I still think Seattle has something there, and what it would allow them to do is if they can run the ball effectively out of it, and I, I'm sure they'd be able to. It would mean teams. Likely to play more base, which means if you put Lockett in the slot, if you if you run like a nub formation, you might get Lockett matched up on a linebacker, and and then that's a mismatch. And if we're thinking about how Seahawks are going to play in twenty twenty two, which is expected to probably lean a bit more to run, uh, and and definitely not be as uh, high on on early down. Sorry, not early down. Yeah, early down neutral state uh, pass rate as they had been with Wilson. They're, you know, they need all the kind of easy, uh, quick throws, but they also need to be able to uh, ha- have a, like a, a running game where they can, they can get it going and then and then hit the opportunities. With, and if you can get in twelve personnel, right, with with a tight end group, I think that helps. So when we're talking about Eskridge, uh, and we're talking about Goodwin, and I get, we can talk about the rookies as well. It 
there again, their opportunity is going to be uh, they're going to decrease. I'd expect Seattle's twelve personnel rate, given their talent there. They love Disley. They, I mean, fan like you very know. clearly they love Disley. They they spent valuable money bringing that man back. No doubt. It, I mean, twelve personnel's got to climb, right? Last year, the highest in the league was Miami with sixty one percent, according to Warren Sharp's site. But um, it'll be interesting. I'd expect it to Seattle to be way higher than twenty six percent. Yeah, well, it's going to be fascinating to see how that all shakes out because I do think Shane Waldron is going to have to learn these new players as much as they have to learn his offense. But the flip side to the receivers are obviously the defensive backs. And much like the offense, we could see a different look to this defense using broad strokes. What sort of changes, if any, do you anticipate with how Seattle approaches their coverages this year? Well, uh, I think it's more a continuation uh, uh th- this isn't um this isn't as radical a change as it as you may initially think p Cowell said that himself right um i mean it isn't it isn't so if we just go through the middle field open so think like you're talking to the coverages right think like your cover four your, your cover two your quarter quarter half stuff right um that sort of deal last year uh they ran the fourth highest percentage of cover two, cover four, and cover six in the NFL per SIS. And True Media had the Seahawks in the fifth highest percentage of middle field open coverages. So they'd already kind of got into that middle field open world. Now, in terms of the 3-4 stuff, right, and being a 3-4 team, they were running 3-4 bare fronts in 2020, 32% of the time, which is significant if you think about, you know, all the all the garbage time stats, um, all the clear pass first situations where it doesn't suit you to be in that bare front that like where it looks pure three four the um, the centers covered up the both guards are covered up and you've got those two wide nine guys on on the edge so they've they've been in these kind of deals that they've laid the three four foundations they've been trying to get there and they've also been in the coverage world now from a Seattle perspective what is interesting is if you think about 2010 2011 I've been told that coaching staff on defense with, with when they implemented their cover three stuff the stuff which took took the world by storm right when they did all that that was the coaching staff like Gus Bradley he came up with all the pattern matching rules all of the stuff Dan Quinn he worked with the front mechanics as well Bradley also had input with the linebacker stuff but all of the positional coaches underneath all of these young guys who at the time were, were coming up in the NFL they all had input in this in this world, right? So if you s- cycle forward now, Pete, Pete, real quick, Pete Carroll at USC, he had been running all kinds of coverage. He, yeah, you want to be mainly cover three, right? Because you want to have that extra defender in the box. But he'd been running all kinds of coverage. That's college football required that, right? And they'd, they'd be sure. sending pressure and stuff like that. In Seattle, the coaching staff, after trying to run a lot of coverages in 2010, in 2011, they came together and it was the positional coaches who drove the change. Think about us now, fast forwarding. They've got all these new guys. They've already kind of been sprinkling bits in with Clint Hurt's experience. Uh, They also lent on what Ken Norton Jr. had been doing, right? They sprinkled all this in and now they're coming together to build on foundations. So last year, all all that cover two stuff, cover four, cover six, the quarter, quarter, half stuff, the coverage stuff. Uh, the real big thing was this thing called uh, Cleo, which was rather than dropping to an area, right, and visioning the quarterback, which most of their middle field open coverages had been, 
Last year, they in- implemented this matching uh, half-quarter-quarter defense where rather than just dropping to a spot, visioning the quarterback, breaking on the football, uh, the defensive backs and even the linebackers, but the coverage guys, the back seven, they were much more focused on bashing receivers um, and and matching up with receivers in a zone match kind of style, much more aggressive, like Brandon Staley, like Vic Fangio. He has a very similar coverage called uh, Cover 8, um, like what Ken Norton had, had done under Jack Del Rio. So they've already done this Clio stuff, and it was really good because what it did was it clamped up the beaters of Cover 3. Now, Cover 3 ain't bad. There's no right defense, but teams have got so good at beating Cover 3. Sure. This was kind of like the... The this is a bad phrase to use, but it was like the yin to the yang. It was like the the, the perfect opposite change up to, to stop that. It also looked very much like cover three at the snap. So they've already been doing this. They're just building into it, right? Um, and once they made that change, the scheme change, and they found their cornerback grouping, yeah, the defense gave up too many yards last year. And that's, I mean, I, in my opinion, that's largely due to them not being able to have enough uh, pass rush. Now I can get to, and get to why that was as well. But the defense from uh, week six to week 18 came fifth in EPA per play. So despite not having a pass rush, despite the, the cornerback grouping not being there, now they found something in this Clio thing, this matching zone coverages and how they disguised that to look like their their, their cover three stuff and how they also played out of it um, in bare fronts, right? The three, four looks I was talking about. Now this year they've emphasised. Hey, do you know what? Yeah, we're a we're a four three with three four personnel. We've always said that, but now we're just going to go three four personnel and run a three four. Right? Let's not even let's just get two outside linebackers who can drop into coverage. Let's not have a Carlos Dunlap and he might come back for nickel pass rush, but I, I kind of doubt that now because they're getting a bit younger, which is fine. But let's have two outside linebackers who are legit outside linebackers. They're comfortable in space. They can drop back. If you go back and look at their their impressive game against the Packers, right, last last year, that first drive, and I'll be doing a video on it, but that first drive, they threw all kinds of stuff at them. They threw all kinds of disguised coverages, and it worked, right? Rogers was Rogers was shook. They played really well that game. They did. We look back on that game as like the freaking nadir of the season, like as bad as it got, shut out, all of these things, but. Looking at the game that way, which I'm guilty of, does a massive disservice to how fucking good the defense was in that game. Like, they were really amazing. They were so good that Jamal Adams actually caught a football. <laughs> there we go. So this year they bring in this... I said about how in 2011 the coaching staff like got together, they all blossomed together with their ideas of, let's focus on being a really damn good cover three team and let's get our rules right and make our you know, core defense is sound. Let's get the right personnel in. Let's do this. Well, this year, building off what they've done, Clint Hurt, now the defensive coordinator, who I'm sure influenced that idea of half quarter quarter, um, the Clio matchup coverage. Now they've got Kyle Scott, who comes from an Alabama world where they have this coverage called uh, two cuts, where it's very similar cornerback rules on that side. It's a split safety, uh, split coverage deal, but there's very similar elements to different Alabama coverages to this one. And there's more tools that Seattle can implement this year and m- more variants of it. And they've got um, uh, 
Sean Desai, right? Who's the Fangio world. Fangio, as I said, yep. he runs Cover 8, which is very similar. So they've got the coaching staff to make it blossom up again. They're all similar age, just like back in 2011. It's, it's the same deal, right? Now, the funny thing with the 3-4 stuff is, Pete Carroll, if you if you go back and you're a degenerate like, like me, or you can just read my article, um, the USC uh, 2006 media guide describes the team as a 3-4 defense. Oh, that's funny. And they had uh, Clay Matthews and Brian Cushing as their two edge players. Who's the who's the Leo defensive end? Who's the Sam linebacker? No one no one knows. They're outside linebackers, so it's a three four, right? Pete Carroll was running in after the Rose Bowl and Vince Young and Vince Young ran all over them, right? He started running a three four defense back then, which I mean, football football is circular, but he started running the exact same bare fronts that we saw from twenty twenty onwards in Seattle. Why? Because college football is getting spread out. There was all these, uh, they were starting to run more like bubble screens and first level RPO throws. The proliferation of the spread f- throughout the Pac 12 at that point, probably probably just become the Pac 12. Don't know when that happened. Anyway, it was becoming spread football. Now you go to the NFL, you hear about Clint Hurt, and he's saying, Yeah, uh, team spread you out. You hear him talk about football, it's amazing. But he's like, Teams start spreading you out. They're doing all this stuff. You have to be able to cover down and play too high. You have to be able to have your overhangs walk out. Pete Carroll, that's exactly why he was doing a 3-4 back in college. That's exactly why he came up with this defense called Stick. It's the exact same defense that they were doing from 2020 onwards. So so instead of Pete Carroll really evolving into this new butterfly, like how I've been reading it, you're you're saying he's actually returning to his roots with... (laughs) what we are expecting to see moving forward. Well, he's he, he's always just tried to keep it as simple as possible. Win, right? Be effective and win, right? Put players in a, a position yeah. to play fast and win. And so he's done all kinds of things because he's been coaching for ages, right? Like sure. think about think about his small cornerback mold, that other thing where it's like, oh, they're not no longer drafting tall guys. Well, he then goes back to his days at... Um, Nebraska, where where he had a uh, Donnie Legrand, who was a five for eight corner, and uh, Parry Williams, who was six for three, and he's like, "Yeah, we did this back in nineteen seventy something." <laughs> it's like, "All oh, right, yeah, of course you did, because you just done That's everything." Amazing. That's the thing, right? Like he's he's like a a living high level football encyclopedia. Like he's he's seen all of these market cycles throughout every level of football. I want to I want to focus in a little bit on how the current personnel fits what you expect them to do moving forward. And I want to start with the cornerbacks. You know, mm. ever since Richard Sherman left, they've tried really hard to find some stability there and they haven't done it. They almost had it with uh Shaquille Griffin, but ultimately, you know, he wasn't good enough to give him the type of contract that he earned elsewhere, at least in in Seattle's mind and reflective of their salary cap position at the time. And we've just seen them try a lot of different guys there. But it it started to feel like some things were sticking towards the end. Obviously, losing DJ Reed opens up a big opportunity there. Who do you see emerging as the starting corners on this team if you had to bet on week one? Oh, the, corn, the cornerback thing, like, uh, I'm a, a my coaching background is in defensive backs. Play very briefly play cornerback at a terrible level. Hmm. I I have a bias towards cornerbacks, and it's sickening just having this constant churn where they seemingly value safeties over corners, which 
I'd like to talk about. But in terms of the the starters, I think it has to be um, it, ha- it has to be Sidney Jones and Artie Burns because I don't uh, Sidney Jones on the left side because I don't see how Trey Brown coming off a, a patella tendon. I mean that's tough. I'd love for him to come back. Don't get me wrong, but that's tough, right? Then you get to Kobe Bryant, uh, fourth round pick. He could do something. Like he's very polished, uh, athletically mediocre, but very very polished for for a guy. Jim Thorpe Award winner. A lot of uh, production on the football, which stood out to me and was exciting. But uh, his his press. There's a few things which need to clean up. But they play with a, a similar style. Uh, he he looks to disrupt guys. Two to one to none. He stays square at the line of scrimmage. Two to one to none with the arms, I should say, which is what Seattle likes. And he cuts guys off well to to uh, protect the red line when he's in press. So he he has that element to him. But there's a few things. Anyway, it would be a shock and a, a very pleasant surprise if he'd taken Sidney Jones's job, right? And then uh, Tariq Woolen, I don't expect to play in in on on defense in in year one. He's he's just too raw. Uh, if that happens, then watch out because his ceiling's crazy because of his athletic gifts. But realistically, he's so raw that um, I don't, I'm not sure I see that happening. So, because I, d- I didn't want to pay Shaquille Griffin, right? There was too many things where I was like, I'm not so sure about this one. And I, I get why they didn't pay DJ Reed. The money was a lot, and his durability. You, he's kind of, it's kind of a given. Almost a few games in each year, right? But also that was frustrating like, because he was he was so good. It's hard for me not to frame it as them choosing Will Disley over DJ Reed. <laughs> well, well, okay, here's, here's a thing, right? At least what well, DJ Reed plays on the right side of the defense, so what their task is le- less important because the quarterback opens to the, the opposite side of the field and then looks backside. And Reed's style is actually very well suited to that, the way he uh, covers guys. But... Whereas Will Disley is like literally key to Seattle's twenty twenty two offense because he's okay, superb blocking tight end and but yeah uh, 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 and also he's a, he's a culture guy and yeah and sure. he hasn't his injury uh, stuff seems to have become good Touchwood F- philosophically right it's clear they value safeties over corners right like they've that's what they've done that's what they decided to do now that's interesting because. Like Pete Carroll, when he was at the Jets in 1994, another history tour, but he drafted Aaron Glenn as his first ever pick at cornerback, who is now the Lions defense coordinator. He was five foot nine, right? So it's not that I think um, they wouldn't take a cornerback high if they felt like it. And we could have had a situation in the draft, right, where uh, Source Gardner fell or um, Stingley fell and the tackles have been taken and they were like, we can't trade down or this guy's too good to pass up. Source would have been like the prototype, right? But I think with how it is now, their safeties are the key to it all because they're going to be lining up in a lot of uh, too high looks like they did last year, toward, especially towards the back end and dis- disguising their coverages. Like last year, Adams is the backside safety. He's that versatile chess piece where you, you couldn't tell pre-snap if he was playing cover three weak bars, cover two, Cover four, Cleo, like I spoke about. Cover one, Robber, which is man-to-man defense. Cover three, Sky. So there's a like a variety of coverages from that shell. And a lot of teams read that backside safety to, to get a, a glimpse of what coverage is going on. But if they're both just stay, staying high at the snap and then coming down, then that's a bit more confusing. Similarly, 
Diggs is a chess piece of his own. Don't forget his nickel background, right? He has that nickel right. background. And he and he's a ferocious tackler and a blitzer. He's just small. I fucking love Quandre Diggs. It is, I, I cannot overemphasize his importance to this team. And I think that the re-signing of him was the clearest indicator that they don't see this as a full-on rebuild. Yeah, I, I, and and defensively, like, the defense was good last year, as I, as I said, EPA for play-wise, once they got their stuff sorted. I do worry with the cornerback group that we get a situation where they're having to uh, sort of uh, figure things out. Hopefully, they don't have, like, another Akello Witherspoon deal where they sign a guy who's shown himself to be finesse throughout his career, and then they're disappointed that he's playing in a finesse manner. But hopefully, that doesn't happen, but... Well, it's it's hard because the rest of the NFL has valued edge rushers and cornerbacks on defense, and Seattle mm-hmm. has valued safeties and middle linebackers. And you know, I I can see why they've done it. Um, they obviously had historical success early in Pete Carroll's tenure here doing that. But I'm with you. Like I love the fact that both Quandre Diggs and Jamal Adams are there. I I think you know, say what you want about the Adams trade that's been debated to death. But the fact is he's here and he's really good. And Quandre Diggs has shown himself to be a phenomenal free safety. I love that they're there. The combined salary that those two positions are carrying when you're running out guys like Artie Burns and Sidney Jones, who have kind of bounced around and are one year contract guys. It is a little bit concerning. That being said, they are going to have a ton of firepower, both in the draft and with their salary cap next year. It'll be interesting to see if they say, okay, you know what? We're going to get through this year where we're probably realistically, probably not competing uh, in a really meaningful way beyond the regular season, figure out what we got at corner and then hopefully go out and spend some money or spend some high picks to uh, shore up the boundary. Cause I'm, I'm with you. I'm just kind of over the churn. What I'd, what I'd say though on that is with the defense they're going to be doing, the guys who are more making the disguise stuff work are the safety grouping and the guys who are protecting the cornerbacks, like that Clio coverage, the the, the cornerback on the, to the strength of the call, right? He's just playing a cloud technique. So he's like a cover two cornerback. He's rerouting uh, his the receiver in front of him and then flipping his hips, playing the outside underneath space in that defense. He has a safety protecting him over the top of the defense. Similarly, on the backside of that coverage, where you're playing quarter, quarter, the cornerback is pressing the receiver, but he has the insurance of knowing Jamal Adams is in the dig window protecting his him with inside leverage. Now contrast that with when Seattle was cover three largely, you're on your own out there. You're responsible for the go ball. So you got your middle field post safety, but there's only one guy in the post, right? There's no one. There's you, there's your underneath zone uh, linebackers. So you've got some insurance there, but like the intermediate stuff, like 10 to 15 yards to the deep sideline vertical route from outside releasing stuff, you're on your own. Contrast that with now where you have the added element of disguise, which is the job of the safeties mainly, mainly. And you have a lot more coverages, like as I was saying, fourth highest or fifth highest, depending on what charting company you use, middle field open stuff. You have insurance and protection over the top. So it's not as strenuous in that sense. So as another argument for and the safety stuff, and and in terms of the analytics around safeties, I'm still not sure if we're if we have the best methods for uh, sort of attributing value to them. Uh, 
I, I need to look more into that. But uh, to me, it, yeah, you, you got to watch the tape. <laughs> yeah. So, so it sounds like, I mean, there's a case to be made that you can weight the importance of safety a little bit heavier with the defense that Seattle wants to run than what most NFL teams are doing, which is putting a lot of pressure on their corners to win matchups against great wide receivers. The single most interesting thing to me about this defense moving forward, and it does seem to be a focal point when they were interviewing defensive coaches and all of that is how they're going to use Jamal Adams because you called him a chess piece. I've called him a switchblade. He is somebody that can attack and have an impact on the game from a lot of different ways. But I think if you reduce him to a pure cover safety, that's where he's overpaid. He's, he's not going to justify the contract that he has simply covering guys. But I think he really can if he is freed up to just go attack the ball and create the type of confusion that you were talking about. Do you have any inkling as to what his role is going to look like moving forward? Well, I think the ideal world is a blend of 2020, right? And then 2021, where there's a few confusing things with him in the sense that the narratives from the coaching staff, like one, that teams were keying on him as a blitzer, as though that was a bad thing, whereas surely you could have maybe come up with some looks where, oh, it's good they're keying on Adams as a blitzer. We will, you know, have him down at the line of scrimmage, but then send off the opposite edge or, you know, NFL schemers. I'm sure there's more things you can do there. Didn't seem like a bad thing. They were paying attention to him. Anyway, uh, then the, the second confusing thing with Adams is Clint Hurts, like he improved a lot as a, a quarters coverage safety uh, last year. And he did he did play really good football down the stretch in coverage, right? Uh, on the quarters, like the deep coverage elements, right? But like he came he came from LSU with Dave Aranda, now head coach of Baylor, defensive genius. And that's all split safety, uh, like middle field open pass defenses where Adam's getting a lot of reps in that. So again, that's a bit confusing. Now, the, to blend the stuff together of the blitzing stuff and the coverage stuff, I, I get a bit confused because they were playing him down. Like Seattle still played cover three last year. Adams is playing down either in the outside and underneath space and cover three sky uh, or occasionally lining up um, uh, in in the hook curl when it's a cover three burst, but they played him down a bit as well. But the problem was in 2021, the formations Seattle was getting, and defense is inherently reactive, the formations Seattle was getting where a large proportion of uh, Adam's pressures arrived in 2020 weren't the same. So they used him in 2020 as a way of killing under-center bootleg attacks and, and blitzing him off the edge, right into the teeth of the quarterback trying to roll out and a, a very well-timed calls from Ken Norton Jr., right? But in 2021, they didn't get as much of that, so then the blitz rate decreases, and th- that, was, that was an issue. I think moving forward in 2022, hopefully teams start doing that more, but also just, just find ways. Now they've got a bit more rush talent in theory, right, and, and better-suited rush totally. talent to the scheme that they, they want to be running and basing out of. Now they've got all that sort of stuff sorted. I think there should naturally just be more opportunities for Adams and he'll be less keyed on. And if he is, it will be more to your advantage. Um, the other thing is you could line him up in, in nickel bare fronts. Uh, and I suspect this will continue. That would have been 
Um, Jordan Brooks as the fifth guy on the line of scrimmage with Carlos Duns, Dunlap on the opposite edge. This year, it's going to be probably Mafe and Taylor, or maybe uh, Inwosu uh, and, and Taylor, that kind of combination, right? You won't be getting Jordan Brooks there. Jordan Brooks will still be off the line of scrimmage in the, in like a Mike linebacker role. But what you could do is you could have a package where, and I think they'll play around with packages more, you could have a package where Jamal Adams is playing as the fifth edge in that defense. Because you're having five down the line of scrimmage, he is likely to get a one-on-one op- rush opportunity. And then you can start doing things. It would suck to be a left tackle and have to just try and block Jamal Adams in mm. space. Like what's, if you get your hands on him, great. You're just so much bigger and adept at that. But in 2020, there were so many times where he just went under guys. He just got outside the shoulder pad and just went under the paw. He has like this motorcycle bend around the corner that is so exciting to see. And it felt like in 2021, it, to your point, it was, more stales line him up on the right side and teams would just chip or run the play away from him because they didn't have that pressure coming from the other side that brought Adams into the play. Because when Adams is in the clear and sees the ball, I I do think that he is like top level elite at closing that gap and, and making the tackle. I mean, how many times in 2020 did we see him tackling running backs behind the line of scrimmage on the other hash mark from where he started uh, on the ball. He's, he's really remarkable at that, but I think I agree with you in that he's better as a counter punch than as a lead punch. You know, you, you almost want to force teams to go into the danger zone with Jamal Adams, as opposed to using Jamal Adams to, you know, chase plays into something else. And so I really hope that between Mafe, you know, Daryl Taylor becoming more and more actualized that they can really create enough chaos without Jamal Adams, that they can funnel, some of that craziness to him and let him be the disruptor that I think he was born to be because we just didn't see that last year. The other thing I think we're likely to see is with the presence of Ryan Neal uh, last year when they were working in their like uh, big dime packages, they had Neal as the kind of lining up where the weak side linebacker typically would, taking the weak side linebacker out of the play. Uh, I think varying up who is the guy in the box is advantageous. So, for instance, if you're talking like generic uh, four, uh, one, six, so four defensive linemen, that's categorizing a Taylor and a, and an Inwosu as defensive linemen. So sure. you could call it two, three, six, depending on what you categorize as a linebacker. But anyway, if you play cover two, right, some plays have Jamal Adams as the deep half player and Ryan Neal as the curl player, and then other plays have Jamal Adams is the curl player and Ryan Neal is the half player. If Adams is in the box, then you have easier ways to blitz him more. Whereas uh, if he's back, then it, it works out. The structures you can figure out, but basically have him more in the box. Whereas when they were in dime plus or big dime last year, Neal was always that guy coming down. They did that so Adams could play like he, he played a bit of like cover one robber where that's like his best call. But you could mix up other different things and, and sprinkle in things. Again, work the packages and, and, and work that sort of stuff out. They tried to last year. They just, I, I think they were scrambling so much with other issues that they kind of just said, 
okay, you're just going to play safety now because it, it, last year there was a lot of challenges. Yeah, I think I think that's safe to say, man. There were challenges aplenty. And, and, and look, man, this has been amazing, a, a very illuminating discussion. If it were up to me, I'd pick your brain for another hour but I know you need to get to bed. I'm seeing you ramp up. I know you got to ramp down. Thank you so much for giving us so much good shit so late in the night. No problem. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, let's do this again soon. I've got another hour in me. <laughs> oh, that's that's a fact, man. No question about it. We're definitely going to have you back on. Before we let you go, tell the folks who are listening where they can get more of you. Uh, well, you can find my work at All Seahawks, which is Fan Nation uh, and SI.com. And then, yeah, follow me on Twitter at Matty F. Brown. Check out my YouTube channel, which is Matty F. Brown. Neat. And then also, please do check out my podcast with Griffin Spin Move at C Mike Spin Move, which is at Seattle Overload. I believe he's been a guest on this show as well. Yeah, yeah. We had Griffin in, and, and it was equally a brilliant discussion. Oh, and probably and so far we wanted more. to get the. Griffin's, <laughs> we wanted Griffin's to get a smart the... guy. <laughs> It, it, it's true, man. I mean, we want you guys on because my favorite thing, we were saying this before we got on the air today. My favorite thing about doing this podcast is that I feel like it makes me a lot smarter. I want to be a smarter fan. I want to understand the game and this team better. And having guests like you and Griffin on really do help us do that. So uh, really, man, we we appreciate it. And make sure you're checking out the Seattle Overload podcast. Make sure you're following Maddie on Twitter and checking out his stuff because it, it really is, as you guys have gathered from the last hour, it's really high level football acumen stuff. And if you're into challenging yourself to know more about the nuanced details of scheme and philosophy, you're really going to be hard pressed to find a better avenue to that than um, following Maddie. So that's going to do it for Mike and I. Another huge thanks, Maddie. And if you're checking us out for the first time, make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. And feel free to give us a follow on social media as well. You can find me on Twitter at, at Jackson Bevins. That's J A C S O N. Remember that no K is OK. Mike is at, at Mike Barwin. And the show itself is at Cigar Thoughts. You can also find us on Instagram at, at Cigar Thoughts NFL and on Facebook at Seahawks Cigar Thoughts. Of course, you can listen to this show and read every article at fieldgoals.com slash cigar thoughts. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and like the show, drop us a five-star rating and leave a quick review. We feel extremely blessed to have your support as the show continues to grow. And y'all show that not just by tuning in, but by leaving those reviews and sharing on social media. We appreciate it so much. We will be back soon, but in the meantime, onwards and upwards, my friends. Oh!